Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Take a receipt out of your pocket. What does it say about you? Perhaps you just did a Costco run and you managed to snag the last bundle of toilet paper, 15 pounds of oranges, and one of those delicious street taco kits that makes Tuesday night dinners really easy. I spend too much money at that place. The point is, receipts can tell us an awful lot about people in the world in which they lived. And George Washington kept receipts. On today's show, Dr. Julie Miller joins me to discuss the hidden lives we can find in Washington's receipts and similar documents. Dr. Miller is a historian and the curator of early American manuscripts at the Library of Congress, where she oversees a vast array of archival material, including Washington papers. She's also one of the forces behind the Library of Congress's crowdsourcing campaign, By the People, which encourages citizens to transcribe manuscripts in the library's collections. Last year, the library asked folks to transcribe two groups of unpublished Washington papers that date to the Revolutionary War, a collection of receipts and a bundle of British deserter interrogations. Their goal is to learn more about people like Mary Smith, who was Washington's housekeepers, by looking at these documents. Dr. Miller helps us see the stories we can tease out from these sources. So be sure to check out the show notes for the links to the project, as well as the documents you'll hear us discuss during the program. We also touch on the Library of Congress's collaboration with the Georgian Papers Program and their future exhibit, The Two Georges, which will explore the commonality shared by George Washington and George III. Now, before we get started, I want to note that we recorded this piece last summer, right around the time that things began shutting down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This was also around the time when everyone and their mother was getting on the internet, so you might hear a hiccup or two in the audio. But the knowledge you'll gain is worth the price of a little reverb here and there. I should also note that Dr. Miller has recently published a new book, Cry of Murder on Broadway, A Woman's Ruin and Revenge in Old New York, which is out now from Cornell University Press. So if you like true crime, then this book is definitely for you. And with that, let's rifle through Washington's receipts with Dr. Julie Miller. Thank you very much for joining us today. Normally you'd be working at the Library of Congress, but you are working from home. We've been home since March 16th, so quite a while. Wow. And and do you have any sense yet of when uh, the Library of Congress might be opening back up to research? The Library of Congress is closed to researchers at the moment, and all the programs have been canceled at least until the fall, but some staff have gone back. We continue to answer reference questions. Our reference system is automated. We have access Mm -hmm. to our email, so quite a lot of work in my division, in the manuscript division, continues and elsewhere around the library also. So digital programs continue, cataloging continues, many things continue, but the reading rooms are closed to the public. Mm -hmm. But we have, the library has extensive digital resources, which you can see on the website, www.lsc.gov. There's quite a lot available that you can see online. Yeah, especially the last few years, it seems like the Library of Congress has really, really ramped up their digitization efforts. Yeah, I mean, the library was really a pioneer in digitization in the 90s, and the George Washington Papers were the first collection to be digitized there. So it's it has a weird distinction of being a very old digital product, you know, which mm-hmm. is unusual. We don't think of things that are digital as being old, but in fact it is. But yeah, the library is doing quite a lot of digitization because... We, you know, increasingly we realize that this is the way people get information. We're very interested in serving teachers, and it's a way for people to see things when they can't actually come. Well, I'm looking forward to the library opening back up. It is one of the world's great libraries. It's one of my favorite places to research, and haven't actually done any research in quite some time there. So hopefully, uh, when the shop opens, I can uh, I can get in line and come look at some fun stuff. Well, Julie, can you tell us what you do at the Library of Congress? Because I do want to explore your work there for a little bit before we look at George Washington papers specifically, but I'm curious to hear more about your work. Well, I'm the specialist in early American history in the manuscript division of the Library of Congress. So the Library of Congress has many parts. Manuscript division specifically collects papers that document American history and culture. So it has a specific focus. And my focus is on the early period, which of course includes George Washington. So we have papers of 23 presidents, all the early presidents, with the exception of the Adamses, who are in Massachusetts, at the Massachusetts Historical Society. As far as how I came there, um, I should say in college I was an English major. I have a doctorate in history. Um, and I have two books. One is about 
was called Abandoned Foundlings in 19th Century New York, and I have a new one called Cry of Murder on Broadway, A Woman's Ruin and Revenge in Old New York. But what I bring to the George Washington papers in particular is an interest in social history, in other words, an interest in ordinary people. And one of the great resources in the George Washington papers is that George Washington's papers contain loads of stuff about people who are not George Washington for a couple of reasons. I mean, George Washington in the colonial period before the revolution was the kind of, in other words, you have to imagine a colonial Virginia, a place with very few institutions, right? No banks, very few stores, mm-hmm. no social welfare system to speak of other than, you know, very local sort of church type things. So people like George Washington, wealthy men, were like magnets at the center of the society. They made loans, they rented land. Um, He was a manufacturer, as we'll see. He had a weaving workshop. He was in charge of a lot of people. Obviously, he owned slaves, right? He he functioned as a one-person sort of social welfare institution, taking in the children, the orphan children of his brother, and then later his... um, Martha Washington's children and grandchildren, neighbors, many people appealed to him for things. So he, as a result of all this, his papers are full of the lives of other people. And even just as a purchaser, so for instance, before the revolution, like other Virginia planters bought practically everything he needed from England. So Mm -hmm. his books are full, his financial records, records, I should say, are full of lists of these purchases that he made from all kinds of small, medium-sized, and large British, mostly London, but British makers and sellers of all kinds of things. And one of the things that I noticed, which is really interesting, is that quite a substantial number of these people were women because George Washington lived in a world of widows, and widows were women who were empowered. In other words, because of the way Anglo-American law works, so this is both in Britain and in colonial America, and well into the 19th century too, when women were married, they lost their individual identities. Um, they no longer controlled their own money and property. When their husbands died, not that this was a good thing, I'm not advocating that, but when they became <laughs> widows, I'm not making any comments. <laughs> I'm drawing conclusions from the title of my second book. Um, when they became widows, they came once again into control of their money and property. And Washington, obviously, his own mother was a widow. Martha mm-hmm. Washington was a widow before she married George Washington. She was Martha Custis. Um, what happened was there are loads of women who ran all sorts of businesses, and Washington dealt with them very straightforwardly. In other words, he lived in a world in which women did business and Washington did, did, did business with them. So he expected that women to be responsible managers of money and property. So this is a very interesting aspect of George Washington that has not much been explored. Well, I'm excited to talk about a number of these individuals that you found in these papers today. Before we do so, I thought we might give the audience a sense of the scale and scope of the Washington Papers collection, mm-hmm. of which uh, some of the documents we'll be talking about are a part. The George Washington Papers came not to the Library of Congress, but to the State Department initially in 1834, and they were sold by a, a descendant of George Washington's nephew, George Bushrod Washington, who was, George, who was his heir. Mm-hmm. He was also Supreme Court Justice. And what was going on right then in the middle of the 19th century is that all of the founders were, or mostly, I guess, were dead by then. Their families, their descendants, who were in some cases divided from them by a couple of generations, suddenly realized they had something of value. And Americans in that period were starting to recognize that they had history. In other words, if you had asked George Washington, for example, you know what the history of his country was, he would probably have looked to England, right? People, Americans, colonial Americans, you know, they didn't have a country yet, right? So in the middle of the 19th century, especially with the approach of the first centennial, there, there came to be a real interest in history. And the descendants of the founders, so not only Washington's, but Alexander Hamilton's, um, James Madison, um, Thomas Jefferson, began to sell the government their papers. And the government was interested in spending money to buy them. 
So the papers were in the State Department until about 1903 when Theodore Roosevelt issued what I think was an, it was an executive order transferring these historical papers in the State Department to the National Archives and Library of Congress. So they came in, the George Washington papers came in, I think, 1904, and the others came right around at that same time. And the Library of Congress became the repository for the papers of the first 23 presidents. I mean, that happened also over time until the um, National Presidential Library System was established. And that's a function of the, of the National Archives. So that, that's how the George Washington papers came around. And I should say over time, we've acquired odd bits here and there. As far as what the papers are themselves, there's something like approximately 65,000 items and they document every aspect of George Washington's life. There's almost nothing from his childhood. His childhood is really almost a blank with the exception of a couple of things, which are his early, what we call school copy books. And in fact, that's a little bit of a misnomer. Not, they weren't even really books. They were sort of loose pages at, at some early point if I were bound together. We wouldn't do that now. And they show him copying things he was learning from texts. There's some uncertainty about the nature of his early education, but what we see him doing here is copying out texts that would prepare him in a very practical way. He's learning surveying. See him learning rudiments of law because he would be, as a very big man in his neighborhood, he would be like a justice of peace, that kind of thing. He would be a Virginia Burgess. He learned a little geography in the way that it was understood in the 18th century. There's the famous rules of civility. You know, you see him sort of preparing himself to be the kind of man that he thought he was going to be, which was specifically a colonial British Virginia gentleman with power in his immediate community. We have diaries. We have quite a few diaries of George Washington. His diaries are typically very terse. He kept some of those diaries in Almanac. And we see him, for example, when he married Martha Custis, there was a period of a couple of years where the estate of her husband, Daniel Park Custis, was, was in the courts because um, it had to be divided between her and her two surviving children. In the beginning of one of these Almanacs, George Washington listed the produce of the Custis plantations, including the slaves and their value as uh, quantified in share. So it's a very chilling list. Mm. It's interesting to see George Washington making notes on this kind of informally for himself. This is an example of George Washington recording information for his own purposes that we in the 21st century can repurpose for ourselves. In other words, African-Americans today can look at that list for genealogical purposes. Historians could look at that list and understand something about the lives of slaves. So it's a very complicated document with a lot of emotional weight. When mm -hmm. George Washington made it, it meant something different to him. He was instead looking out for himself and his new family. He was saying, here is his property. We have just, I have just inherited. He was taking over. Martha Custis had been a widow. She'd been controlling this property herself. When George Washington married her, he came into control of her property. So he was looking at that and he was saying, what have I got? One of the things that often happens is that George Washington's letters come up on the manuscript market. And I always check to see if we have a version. We almost always do because there's usually at least three copies of all of his letters because he made a draft and he wrote the copy that he sent. And then usually he kept a copy for himself. And when he was president, he had secretaries to do that. And also during the Revolutionary War. But in some version or another, in somebody's handwriting or other, there's always, almost always, like really three copies of the letters. So we tend not to have the copies that he sent, but we have the copies that he kept for himself and then and his drafts. And the drafts are, of course, interesting. We have letters. Then we have 34 volumes of financial papers. George Washington actually studied bookkeeping. He had very clear and complete records of his spending, unlike Thomas Jefferson, who kept sort of mythical records of his spending <laughs> into debt. George Washington kept very clear and accurate records of his spending. And again, we can look at them differently and we can learn something about his material life. We can learn something about all the people he bought stuff from. We can learn all about the slaves who were working for him. And similarly, he had farm reports. He had throughout his, from like the 1780s, um, he had his Farm managers send him these very detailed reports. So in the detailed reports, we've got weather, we've got all the things slaves were doing on the plantation, so we can learn about them and their work. 
their childbirth, their sickness, right? That's all in there. Plus, um, George Washington was very interested in farming as it was modern methods of farming as they were being developed in the 18th century. And you see him trying things out, um, doing experiments with planting. Um, it's all in there. So there's a tremendous amount of information in the George Washington papers. What I find fascinating about all this is the the point you're making about the the tension between how Washington intended for his records to show, you know, what he wanted them to show, what he wanted them to reflect, and and they were mm-hmm. done for very specific purposes, and then what we can make out of them. You know, and I'm thinking uh, about the financial papers. Right. So the financial papers is currently a project at the papers of George Washington at the University of Virginia to digitize the financial papers, and that's very very interesting. So. Mostly, they're working with papers at the Library of Congress, but there's some in a few other places, so that's interesting. At the Library of Congress, we have a crowdsourcing project called We the People, and what we have done recently is put up two categories of papers from George Washington's papers that were not published, and one of them is a set of receipts that George Washington kept, actually not, not he personally, but his housekeepers and stewards kept. Um, during the Revolutionary War. And what they show is the purchases he made from ordinary people during the war. And they are a portrait of how people lived, small traders, tavern keepers, servants, laundresses. Um, during the Revolutionary War, these are people who were, who were you know, running these businesses and George Washington was their customer. So what we did in the crowdsourcing project was we had people transcribe them and they were hard to do because they have unfamiliar money, they have unfamiliar articles of clothing, they have unfamiliar foods. And I, let's just take a look at these. And I know this is a podcast, so you can, but you can build, you'll, you'll be able to see them online, yeah. right? Yeah, we'll post, we'll post the images to uh, what we're talking about online so folks can see, uh, see the documents we're, we're pouring over here. Okay, so I'll do, we'll look at a couple of them. So George Washington, when he came to New York, he set up his house there, not realizing how soon he would have to vacate it, right? Because the British were already massing in the harbor and soon by the fall, they would chase him out. But in May of 1776, he bought a lot of China from Frederick Rhinelander. So we have a receipt for that China and we've got plates, sauce bowls, pudding dishes, more plates, all kinds of things, wash basins, pitchers. Because, you know, he was establishing his house. Mm-hmm. The receipt is um, signed, the, the, you know, the transaction was undertaken by Mary Smith, who was George Washington's housekeeper. George Washington, um, that summer, received an anonymous letter saying that Mary Smith was involved in a plot to um, take over New York and perhaps even attack George Washington. So she, needless to say, left his employment. Although, interestingly, she came back to settle up with him afterwards. How exactly, what that meeting was like, one would really like to know, but it's in his financial records, Mm -hmm. right? So it's a very interesting thing. So he may or may not have taken all that seriously, this accusation against her, nonetheless fired her. She went to England where she applied to the Loyalist Claims Commission and received a Loyalist pension. So she was indeed a Loyalist. So we have this innocent looking receipt. Frederick Rhinelander was also a Loyalist, as George Washington found out. And there's a letter in his papers where he says that, I wish I could remember the word dastardly or something like that, Loyalist. So here we have a receipt, a very mundane and routine document. And it tells you a bunch of things that Washington did and did not know. In other words, you see him planning to remain in New York for quite a while when, in fact, he did not have that opportunity. And you see that he is dealing with people who were, in fact, his enemies, but he didn't know it then. And he mm-hmm. later found it out. So it's, a, it's an interesting document, more full of information than you might imagine. Furthermore, if you're interested in China, and there's a whole book called George Washington's China, it'll tell you something about that, too. And some of these things are at Mount Vernon, right? Some of the Mm-hmm. China that George Washington purchases, in fact, at Mount Vernon. So that's a really interesting one. Another one that I like a lot is a laundry bill. Now, there's quite a few laundry bills in George Washington's papers. And the idea being that laundry bills are the most useless, mundane sort of things. And I am here to tell you that laundry bills are, in fact, packed full of information, and specifically about the information of women's work. 
laundresses um, were often the poorest sorts of women um, who couldn't read or write in many instances, although not in every instance. But it's a shame because laundresses are people who see other people's dirty laundry, right? Both literally and figuratively. They knew a lot. They knew a lot. So there's a kind of a, there's a lost, a piece of lost information there. So we have a laundry bill here from a woman whose name was Martha Morris. And she's identified here as a Negro winch, right? So this is a mm -hmm. third person description of her. This is you know, this is not a very polite way to refer to her. So basically, she was an African-American woman who lived in New York in the summer of 1776, spring, summer, fall, or at least the fall of 1776. This bill is dated from October, just as George Washington was leaving the city. So what do we know about her? Almost nothing. Almost mm -hmm. nothing. So it's a suggestive document, but we know a fair amount of what happened to African-Americans in New York. So George Washington left in the fall of 1776. The British came in and New York, occupied New York, became a haven for runaway slaves. But New York, as in Virginia, offered freedom to slaves of not loyalists, but patriots. So mm -hmm. now, was Martha Morris a slave? I, we don't know, I don't know. She may have been, she may not have been. It's, it's just something we don't know. She was a person who lived a whole life. She had an occupation, and we have a bit of evidence here, and that's all we have. So it's a very kind of um, poignant thing, but it shows her. So one thing that did not happen was that when Washington left New York, there's no more bills from her, so she didn't go with him. She, it wasn't a part of his household. So she may very well have stayed in New York, and if she was a slave, she may have become free. But I think if you're a teacher, you could join a primary source document like this, with all the things that we do, in fact, know about the lives of African-Americans in New York and occupied New York during the Revolutionary War. And you could say to students, imagine a story based on facts that we have, things that you can learn from secondary sources, and bring her back to life. A really fascinating point to think about, too, isn't it? And I'm wondering if, if she did stay in New York during the British occupation, you know, does she show up and say the papers of uh, General William Howe or Sir Henry Clinton? I wonder if she's still out there in, in a different record collection. So that's a great point, right? So that's a kind of least line of research that one can take. Furthermore, she spent a lot of time in Washington's house. She knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. So if I was General Howe, I would interview her, right? And I'm yeah. sure they did. I'm sure they did. I'm sure, I mean, that's the thing. If if that happened, in other words, there's a lot of ifs here, but the point is that she's a person who had information. Oh, sure. So it, it's interesting. There's a lot, there's a lot of depth to these, like more than you think sometimes. And it's a good example too, of you, as you say, you've got that single document, but then just based on the other contextual evidence we have, we can begin to at least reconstruct something of her life, even if we only have just a snippet of it. You know, we can imagine the world in which she was living. So we have others. I have a funny one. I have, well, lots of them are funny, but here's a particularly funny one. So here's a bill from Coriolis Ferry, Pennsylvania, June 22nd, 1778. And it's a bill to a man named Richard Holcomb. This is just funny. This is so he's ordering, this is very simple dinners, bread and butter, pretty straightforward. Then he's being paid for trouble, et cetera, made in the house. What happened? I would love to know. You know, so this is something happened. There's some incident, something occurred. Maybe by trouble, they mean, he means taking trouble, right? There's more than mm -hmm. one way you can interpret that. Maybe there was some incident. So here's, here's a receipt. It's a very straightforward document. But that has a little mysterious piece of information in there that raises a question. Again, you can look, we've got a date, we've got a place, we've got a name. If, you know, all these people, you have to figure um, during the war, they remember that George Washington stayed with them. Local histories are a really good source of information. This guy, maybe he has a story, had a story to tell and he told it. You know, I don't know. In other words, they, they provide all kinds of um, threads that you can follow. I'm kind of wondering what might have happened. You know, as you said, the word trouble can be taken a, different, a few different ways and then Thinking about the date, uh, that's around the time that I think the British began to evacuate or uh, abandon Philadelphia. And so maybe there was uh, an extended celebration that got out of hand or something. 
something like that. Right. You know, it raises a question. So it's interesting. I just wanted to take a look at Hannah Stewart. So Hannah Stewart was a seamstress. And when George Washington, this is later, 1779, had headquarters at West Point, she made him table linens. So again, George Washington, everywhere he went, wanted to make, even I guess if he was, usually he was sort of renting from someone, you know, he was like living in somebody's house, but he was preparing to entertain, you know, officers, French officers, for example, mm -hmm. um, by this time, right? Um, who knows who else, but he was, you know, establishing a household. So this is a, a seamstress and she makes um, tablecloths and towels. And interestingly, she signs her name, right? So this is a seamstress yeah. who's illiterate. So that's interesting, right? So it mm -hmm. tells you a little something about a woman who lived in New York in 1779, who made a living as a seamstress, and she signed her own name, which there were women who could read, but not write well into the 19th century. This is 1779. Sure. So that's interesting. I want to know more about that. No, that's really fascinating. And I think it tells you something about the skills she has. Uh, right. And that she's carrying on business by herself. Uh, and then I'm just looking at the document too. You know, the last few documents we, we've been looking at were given in pounds, at least the currency was, I think, for most right. of them. And here we've got $20. Right. So there's, uh, you know, evident, evidently they're using a different currency at this point as well. All different currencies are represented in the, in the receipts. There's Pennsylvania pounds, there's New York pounds, there's dollars. I should say that making tablecloths and towels is a skilled occupation. I say this because one of my pandemic activities was making curtains, so <laughs> which I like to do. But it's not easy. It's not easy. You have to do calculations. Yeah. You have to know a little math. You have to be able to measure. You know, you have to be able to sew. You have to like figure out how it works, and you mm -hmm. have to make drawings. So she did all that. You know, so. It, it's, I think we've tended to imagine that women who did these sorts of things were skilled, but they were. It's important to remember that. And they ran these businesses, you know, so it's interesting. So she might have been a farm wife. She might have been a widow. She might have been a spinster. She might have been a young woman living at home with her family. It's hard to know. Since we were talking about Hannah Stewart and how she signed her own name, there's also a man named Michael Rapp in White Marsh, Pennsylvania, December 5th, 1777. We have a receipt from him for what's described as food for General Washington's servants. So mm -hmm. you can see what they're eating. So that's interesting, right? So they're eating things like ducks, cabbages, potatoes, turnips, milk, butter, and cream. But he cannot sign his name. That's interesting too. So mm -hmm. I think we have all kinds of ideas about who could do what and so on. And I guess what's interesting is that, you know, real life is more complicated. So here we have a man who is in business. I guess he's probably a farmer of some kind and he's selling these things in kind of large quantities to George Washington in Pennsylvania in 1777, but he's not able to write. So someone is writing out this bill. It gives you a sense of the local economy too, as as well as the kind of the agriculture production that's taking place on this main right, farm. Exactly. Well, you could do like an entire regional study or trans-regional study of uh, foodways and agricultural production using this stuff. Since you said that, I will just point out that we have a receipt from Christopher Ludwig, who was the Baker General of the Continental Army and an interesting character. He was actually a German immigrant, and we have a receipt in which he lists all the ingredients he needed to make gingerbread, which was his specialty. In Philadelphia, nice. he had a bakery where he made and sold gingerbread. And you can see what he was um, making it out of, and it's on the receipt. So the, the receipts tell you a lot about what people ate. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's really quite a lot yeah. in these receipts. They're fairly hard to use, but because we did this crowd, they, they've been online all along mm -hmm. and people have used them. You do see them like in the book about George Washington's China. You can see um, descriptions of the Frederick Rhinelander purchases. There's a book by um, Karen Wolf where she describes Rebecca Steele, who was a Philadelphia tea merchant. So they have been used, but a lot of them have not been used. And the transcription project is just a start. 
Would you speak just briefly about the crowdsource transcription project? You, you mentioned it earlier, but I, I want to know a little bit more about that, and then perhaps we can we can let people know how they might be able to help. So the, the Library of Congress has a transcription project called We the People, and what they're doing is they're choosing manuscript collections, um, mainly from the manuscript division, but from some other divisions in the library, and it's a crowdsourcing project, so people transcribe what they see, and their goal is to transfer those descriptions, transcriptions into the library's website. So when we have a digitized collection, you'll be able to see those transcriptions alongside the image of the document. And you mentioned deserters as well, uh, sure. interrogations and whatnot, which sounds quite fascinating. Well, what's, what's the story behind those? George Washington Papers has two small notebooks that contain notes taken at interrogations of deserters around New York City in 1782 and 1783. These were done, it's not entirely certain who took them, but they were pretty clearly George Washington's aides, right? In mm -hmm. other words, officers of some sort. The two notebooks were in George Washington's possession. They were in his papers. So they contain, you know, in terms of George Washington, you can, one thing you can learn from them is what George Washington learned from the deserters. In other words, these notes were given to him. And in his letters, in fact, you see him mentioning deserters all the time, things that he learned from deserters. But again, from our perspective, the deserters' notes tell us other sets of things. At the back of the second notebook, there's a list of questions that the interrogators were meant to ask the deserters. And the questions were basically, who, who are you? Mm -hmm. Where do you come from? And what's the news in the encampment that you just left? In other words, how many troops are there? Where are they coming from? Where are they going to? What's their strength? And so on. So that's the basic structure. But what comes out, a couple of things come out and the answers that they gave. First of all, they were not strictly deserters, even though the cover of the book says deserters. Mm -hmm. Some of them were, in fact, escapees. In other words, they were people who had been captured by the British and escaped. Some of them were oh. very ambiguous figures who just seemed to have wandered in and out of British camps. Like, who knows? Like, one guy was, he says he was visiting his son, and he stayed, and he worked as a, I forget, a tailor or something like that, and then he left. Who knows, right? In other words, they're a mysterious, in some cases, group of people. Quite a few of them are Hessians. The Hessians had no great commitment to the British cause, you know. So one of them, in fact, bought land in Georgia. And when it came time to leave, he didn't want to leave. He was already in America. You know, so that's yeah. quite interesting. The way they look is they're kind of like a paragraph long, in some cases, like maybe a sentence to a paragraph or a few paragraphs. And they function as capsule biographies. So again, George Washington wanted these because they told him about what was happening in British camps around the occupied city. But when we, and they still tell us that. So they're still interesting for that. But what they also tell us about the lives of these people that we learned about in elementary school, right, as redcoats, right? You remember those guys, they're marching along the redcoats. Mm -hmm. But here they are, right? And you see them, and they're a very diverse group of people. Some of these people have been impressed. So they're just like mm -hmm. captured. Some of them were actually Americans who had been impressed at sea and into the British Navy and then kind of sailed around. Some of them were British men who had been impressed. Um, they had been to different places. They'd been to the West Indies, you know, places like that. Um, one of the really interesting things that you start to see is that in 1782, the by the end of 1782, George III realized that he had lost. You know, Yorktown had taken place, the Battle of Yorktown had taken place. By December of 1782, George III finally gave in and he said, I recognize that the United States are independent states. And this, this information reached these men, in other words, these men who were occupying New York, these British service people, as rumors. And they, mm -hmm. and they report those rumors and they say things like, we learned, you know, that they're going, that, the, that the, there's been news, you know, that, that the war is coming to an end. And they're also, they say, oh, I see that there's these transports in the harbor and it looks like they're going to ship us out somewhere else. And they were very nervous. Now, in fact, they didn't leave for another year. But, and there's a lot of this rumor that they then report to their interrogators. And what you see is that they weren't told. They weren't told officially that the war was over, but they knew it anyway. And mm -hmm. that piece of information 
is one of the things that you can find out from this. And they became very restless and they start to desert. In other words, that's one of the reasons that some of them were in fact deserters because they didn't want to go to Halifax. They didn't want to go to the West Indies. They wanted to stay. So just to take a look at something, you can see how this played out. Uh-huh. Here we have John Spooner, August 17th, 1782. So this is a year, more than a year before the British in fact evacuated, but quite a lot of months after the game was really up. And he says here, this is his name is John Spooner, a handbill was published on Wednesday containing intelligence of the independence of America. So as we know, the independence of America was 1776, but it wasn't recognized by the British until much, much later. So he's right. learning this from a handbill. Wow. Now here we have Christian Rydenby, October 2nd, 1782. He was a Hessian mercenary. He deserted his regiment on Governor's Island in New York because he owned land in Georgia. So he had no intention of remaining. That's fascinating. Yeah. All right. So here we have a fifer, right? So he's part of the band. He plays the fife. He escapes his regiment on Long Island, and he reports great uneasiness prevails among the court. Right? So he's, and again, because he doesn't say why he's uneasy, but all, and if you read all of these, all of the other people are saying, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Shipping us out, we don't want to be shipped out. So you have to, have to assume that that's what he was uneasy about. Yeah. And here we have one, and there are a lot of them mentioned. This is a very big theme. John McLean, September second, seventeen eighty-two. This is someone who was a Virginian. He's not British. He had been a prisoner in New York, and he escaped from occupied New York. And he reported seeing about a hundred sail of transports in the harbor. It is said bound for Halifax. We've got folks from all stripes in there. Yeah, they're very interesting. They're a very diverse group. So here we have two men, Richard Green and Daniel Lane. They had been members of the Loyalist Corps headed by Benedict Arnold, right? Benedict Arnold defected in 1780 from West Point. And by this time, by 1782, he was a British officer. And Richard Green and Daniel Lane were loyalists who joined his corps. But they say they, who knows if this is true, they... They enlisted with Arnold in order, they say, to get out of the sugar house in British-occupied New York. Now, the sugar house is a jail. and have mm-hmm. a picture of it. There's a little piece of the sugar house in Ben Cortland Park in the Bronx in New York, right near where I am from. So I'm very familiar with this. We used to visit it when we were kids. Um, it's a little piece of a window from a sugar house, like a storehouse for sugar, mm-hmm. that was used as a jail during the Revolutionary War. They um, had been in jail for doing this, what, and they escaped it, and they deserted to George Washington. So here we have a little glimpse of Benedict Arnold. Yeah, and one wonders what was going through Washington's mind, because I'm, you know, I'm sure he was still not over, and never did get over right. Arnold's no. betrayal. Right, right. So you have to figure there's more information there. But whoever was who's interrogating them was just asking them the basic questions. Yeah, yeah. So. I should say, I had this backwards. They, they, they enlisted with Arnold in order to get out of jail, and then they further escaped from Arnold. Now, one thing that's really interesting about these um, soldiers and sailors, these British soldiers and sailors, is that in many cases, they were people who were leading very adventurous lives. So here we have John Carroll, November 29, 1782. He's from Philadelphia, right? He's an American, mm-hmm. and he was depressed by a British ship, and he was imprisoned in Jamaica. And in order to um, get out of jail in Jamaica, he was offered um, the opportunity to sail on a British privateer, which he did. Wow. And then he was impressed again, and he ended up on Lake Champlain, on a British ship in Lake Champlain, and he escaped from there and somehow made his way to New York City. He was interrogated. So this is a this is a life, right? Yeah. If you wanted to find out more, and a few of them went with him. In other words, I picked him out, but in, in that book, there's a couple who came with him. If you wanted to find out more about that, I think you probably could. But it tells you again, we have this monolithic understanding of who these British redcoats were, and it's just it's just not true. So the Library of Congress is in, in partnership with um, the Georgian Papers Program, which is a project to digitize the papers of King George III, which are actually at Windsor Castle. And we are working on an exhibit tentatively titled The Two Georges, 
in which we use the papers of George Washington and George III to introduce people to these two figures and their world. So we've learned some, you know, really interesting things about them. One of the things that we're learning about um, in terms of George III is Queen Charlotte, his wife. Mm -hmm. And we discovered, not not at the Windsor Castle, but in the Manuscript Division of the Library of Congress, we have a microfilm reel of letters of Queen Charlotte to her brother, Prince Charles um, of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, which is where she was from. And the Library of Congress collected these in 1930. They were in archives in Germany. This is like well before World War II. And wow. Yeah. And the idea was to gather information about the American Revolutionary War. So they, they at this archives in Germany, they had um, Queen Charlotte's letters with her brother. She was very close to this brother. She corresponded with him over many years. And in the Library of Congress, we have manuscript, we have, I'm sorry, we have microfilm of a range of her letters to her brother from the period of the war. And I was just talking about the diversity in the soldiers who went. She describes hearing stories about these soldiers and she describes them to her brother. Describing, of course, she didn't see this herself, but she's describing a group of men who had gone to some park in London to sign up and how they're talking among themselves. And, you know, she's describing this to her brother. And it's very interesting. And she was fascinated by the war and she describes her feelings about it. At one point, she says, I can think about nothing else. I mean, who knew, right? You know, it's very, very interesting. So in some way, we're going to have to get those letters in there. So she, she turns out to be a very interesting figure. But this focus on the Revolutionary War, I don't think has been emphasized that much. So they turn out to be a very interesting resource. And she, for example, went with the king to review the, the troops and the ships. She met with the generals when they came to meet the king. So anyway, so we're looking, the two Georges, um, our goal, well, our goals are a couple of things. One is, you know, we don't think of them as being real people, either George Washington or George III. And it's an opportunity to introduce them as real mm-hmm. people and to show them um, in their context and the similar similarities they had to each other. And one of the really striking similarities is they were both very interested in new ideas about agriculture. So sure. we have, for example, examples of them both doing these little charts of crop rotations. And we have them both making notes on the same agricultural books or reading the same books. So this was like a, a kind of a, a dimension of the enlightenment that they both entered mm-hmm. into. Neither of them were really intellectuals. They're both very smart, right? I think sometimes they both get a bad rap for not being smart. They were smart, but they weren't scientists in the way that Benjamin Franklin was a scientist. For example. Mm-hmm. They just weren't. But they were both very, very interested in the practical applications of new ideas about agriculture. And you see them working that out in their letters and in their notes that they took on things that they were experimenting with. When I was in Windsor, uh, my fellowship, I remember reading through the King's essays and then actually reading through some of his agricultural stuff. And and I sort of knew in the back of my mind, for example, that uh, he was reading Arthur Young. Uh, But I don't know why, just it, it never really occurred to me until... A couple of months later that Washington was reading the same thing. And then I, I think I was talking to uh, Bruce Ragsdale one time, uh, who was writing a book on Washington and, and I think uh, actually George III as well on agriculture. And I we were just sort of speculating, what, what would they say to each other? They would have disagreed a little bit on independence, certainly, but um, on farming and the techniques of green manure, they probably would have uh, had a good time talking to each other. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, if you were a teacher, you could say, imagine them sitting together in a room having a conversation, and the exhibit that we do will have the material that will allow you to do that. Now, of course, they never did meet, right? Mm-hmm. But they had a lot in common. So agriculture, Arthur, George Washington actually corresponded with Arthur Young, you know, so, and Arthur Young was a leading um, writer, British writer on modern methods of agriculture, and both George's read him. So, mm-hmm. and we have George Washington's notes on that and many other things in his papers. So that's very interesting. They both had mothers who were widows. This is quite interesting too, yeah. that um, George III's mother, Princess Augusta, she was never queen because her husband died before he could become king. She was 
somebody who, um, when her husband died, her son, the future George III, was still a boy. And there was a period of time when she um, was in a peculiar position. She had some political clout as the mother of a future king. And she did her best to keep the future George III under her own influence and not that of his grandfather, George mm -hmm. II, who was still the king at the time. It's a very interesting letter in George III's papers where George II has said to the young prince, come live with me, leave your mother. And George, then Prince of Wales said, no, I think I'd rather stay with my mother, which he does. And then there are a lot of very nasty satirical cartoons that suggest, even when he was already king, that suggests that he was basically being led around by his mother. So the idea of a woman attempting to exercise power, very threatening to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, it, 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 that's interesting. Now, Mary Ball Washington, there's a wonderful new book, biography of her by Martha Saxton, which um, presents her in a new light. So you may know that there's many biographies of George Washington that present Mary Ball Washington as a word that's used all the time, a term against, right? Even Ron Chernow has picked this up from these early yeah. biographies, just to uh, make my point here. Um, what she was like personally, I'm not arguing that she was a super pleasant person. She may very well not have been, but her position was that she was a widow. As a widow, she came to control of property that would one day belong to her son, but she hung on to it. You know, she continued to live in a house that George Washington eventually would own. This was the position of a lot of widows. She was dealing with the laws of property as they existed in her time. And she also attempted to exert influence over her son. Um, and she's been regarded in various ways. There was a period in the 19th century where she was sort of, you know, the mother of Washington, mm -hmm. sort of saintly figure. And then in the 20th century, she kind of fell out of repute. And she's referred to in a way that's really very misogynistic. So I think Martha Saxon's book really shows what her life was like. She had a hard life. You know, I mean, she was, you know, she was an orphan and she married a man who had all these children from his previous marriage. And then she was widowed mm -hmm. and she ran her own household for quite a long time after she was widowed. So both Georges had the experience of being raised by mothers who took care of themselves and took some flat for it. So, yeah. you know, it's quite interesting. And both Georges were both modern and traditional in, in mm -hmm. interesting ways. So as rulers or leaders of nations, they were interestingly modern, right? They were not despots. They were people who were starting to think of themselves as disinterested fathers of their families, the family as nation, that sort of a way of understanding it. Um, but they were both distinctly patriarchs, right? So George Washington was an owner of slaves, right? This is not modern. This is distinctly not modern. George III, this is not exactly the same thing, but he um, was not interested in democracy in the least, right? And just to give one example in terms of how this worked in his family, he proposed and had Parliament pass something called the Royal Marriages Act in 1772, which yes. basically prevented members of his family from marrying without his permission, which created terrible, terrible havoc in his family. Mm -hmm. And one result was that even though he had 15 children, he had like, in the end, like one legitimate heir who died, you know. So he, and you know, that's why there's Queen Victoria. She's sort of, is the only heir at the end. <laughs> um, but here he is laying down, you know, the heavy hand of his uh, law and saying, you must do as I say. So they're, they're traditional figures, obviously, but they're, you know, George Washington is obviously more modern than George III, but mm -hmm. they were, they're temperamentally similar, which is interesting too. They both were people who were kind of, it's complicated. I mean, they were modest in a sense. In other words, they were not so showy. Like George III, for example, was sort of referred to sort of jokingly as Farmer George because of interest, his interest in agriculture, but also because of the way in which he and the Queen sort of attempted to present themselves as ordinary people mm -hmm. in the way that the modern British monarchy seeks to present itself as a kind of an ordinary middle-class family, which obviously they're not. But 
it's a way that people, you know, it's something that people find relatable. And George Washington, similarly, was very suspicious of showiness. You know, he associated luxury with the decay of the, you know, the British Empire. But they were both rulers. So George III, complicatedly, on one hand, was sort of a modest figure. On the other hand, you know, he had a crown and ermine. George Washington was a modest figure, but when he was a young man, he bought many fancy things for his house from British merchants. So, you know, they're complex figures. They're ambitious figures in certain ways. So they, they, they were similar. They were both real homebodies. Um, you know, they stayed home. They didn't really want to go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something they had in common. <laughs> they didn't travel. They didn't really travel. Well, you've written a very nice blog post about about this subject that we'll actually we'll link to in the show notes so people can read that. Um, I'm assuming that the exhibition that you're planning is on hold at the moment uh, due to the pandemic, or it will there be a digital companion to the physical installation that people will be able to see sooner rather than later? The yeah, exhibit is on hold. You're correct because of the pandemic. So we're we don't know exactly yet yet when it will be. The plan is for it to. Um, open at the Library of Congress at some point, we don't know the mm -hmm. date, and then travel to London, where the, the Science Museum has offered to host it. So we'll see what happens. You know, it's hard to say, but I will, what I will say is that we have organized the exhibit. In other words, it doesn't exist in a physical form. It doesn't have cases at this point, but we have, um, uh, we're finishing up a series of PowerPoints. And so we have, do not as yet have a plan to present it digitally. That's something we'll have to figure out, but we can, we could. I mean, it mm -hmm. exists in that form. So one way or another, we will in some manner get it to people at some point. It's hard to say exactly when. <laughs> I look forward to seeing it uh, in person when it does open. And I'm sure folks out there will be excited to see it uh, when we can all get out of the house again. Uh, Julia, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I was very uh, excited to learn more about the George Washington Papers, and I learned more than I thought I would. So this has been a this has been a good day for all of us, I think. Good. Thanks very much for giving me the opportunity. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.